Good morning, Christ Church. If you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you are joining us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series together called God and Sexuality. And we've actually been looking together at what uh, the Apostle Paul teaches to the church in Corinth about this issue of sexuality and kind of what, what does he uh, teach us about gender, sexuality, and all of this. And so we've been engaged together on this topic, and this morning we're going to be moving into our last kind of text in 1 Corinthians that deals with this issue. Now, I recognize that it is likely that I have not answered all of the questions that many of you might have about these issues, but don't worry, today is it. It's going to happen. Um, but what I want to do is I want to give you an opportunity to actually ask some questions that you may have. And so uh, if you have questions that have arisen in this series about a variety of different issues, here's what we're going to ask you to do. Uh, we're going to ask that you text your questions uh, to this number on the screen, 626-380-2300, or you can email your questions to questions at ChristChurchSM.org. And so you can go ahead and do that this morning in the sermon. If there are questions that are evoked by the conversation that we're having today, you can uh, jot those down and send them off in this text. And this week, what we're going to do is Pastor Robert and I are going to sit down and we, based on the number of questions, we are going to do a, uh, a podcast of kind of Q&A around a table around your questions that you're asking. And maybe it'll be two or three or four or 10 podcasts. I don't know how many questions you'll get us, but um, uh, we'll have a great time engaging together on those questions. Does that sound good? All right. Wow, there was a hoot in the front row. It's exciting. All right, let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you now, and we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would speak, that you would give us enablement by your Holy Spirit so that we might see that which you want us to see in your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And so every man who prophesies or prays with his head covers dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the glory and image of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that is why a wife ought to, have a, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels, of course. <laughs> Welcome to church. So I just want to come right out and say this is a weird text. And it's a very, very difficult text in many ways, and it raises so many questions for us. I mean, what does he mean the, 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 that man is the head of woman? And what's all this uh, business about head coverings, and why is that such a big deal? And why does he go off at the end about what a shame it is for a man to have long hair? I mean, a couple of you in the room, I think, do have long hair, and you're men, and what a shame it is. 
And, and what is he talking about? What does that mean? And then what is this business? I mean, I just think when I was working on this text this week, you know, I, there are so many difficult exegetical issues to, in, that you encounter when you're going through this thing and you're reading so many articles and academic essays and all this stuff and you're, you're pouring over the scripture and you're trying to figure this stuff out and you go through all of these, all these like crazy issues and then you get to this, this verse 10 and, and Paul's gonna throw the angels in? Like, look at what he says. He says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. You think you're just going to throw that in there, Paul, like we all know what you're talking about? This is some weird, strange stuff, and it raises a whole lot of questions. And so this morning, we're going to dive into this passage, and we're going to kind of like explore what it's saying to us about issues of gender and sexuality, uh, men and women and the roles that men and women have, and how we function together in the life of a local church. Does that sound good? All right, well, let's dive in. Now, I think what strikes you immediately when you read this text is that we are truly reading someone else's mail. So the Apostle Paul was a great leader in the early church. He is the best interpreter we have of the teaching and the life and the the effects and the event of Jesus of Nazareth. And in the Apostle Paul, you know, he teaches us a wide variety of things. but, But here he is writing to a church in the first century city of Corinth. And there are different things happening culturally within the context at that time that I think we need to understand. But we don't just need to read this text in the context of what was happening in first century culture in Corinth. We need to understand what Paul says here about relations between men and women in the larger context of the Bible. So last week, one of the things that we said was that in the Western world, there have only been three ways that men and women have been understood to be in relationship with each other. And these three ways that men and women relate together uh, could be understood along, they could be charted along the lines of equality and difference. Equality and difference. And we said that the three ways that men and women have been understood to be in relationship with each other could be called polarity. Uh, This was reflected, we said last week, in the writings of Aristotle, who essentially said that men and women were unequal and they were different. And they were unequal because they were different. And the difference was this, men were superior to women. The second way in which the relations of men and women have been understood is sameness. And under the sameness paradigm, uh, men and women are equal, but there is no real essential difference between the two. And what we said is that, what we argued last week is that when you turn to the pages of Scripture, what you discover is not polarity, and you don't discover sameness. Instead, what you see is complementarity. In other words, men and women are equal. They are fully equal in dignity and worth as image bearers of God, and yet they are distinct because God made us in the beginning as male and female. So there is equality and there is partnership, and there is difference. In fact, when you open up the pages of Scripture, what you find in the beginning is that God says to the man and woman, he says, be fruitful and multiply, go into the world and rule over it. And we note well that in the beginning, man was not given dominion or rule or authority over women. Instead, men and women together were given rule and authority over God's world. 
And so in scripture, what you find is equality and partnership and difference. But what about the Apostle Paul? What do you find when you read the writings of the Apostle Paul? Now, Paul in broader, you know, I think Western culture, especially in the 20th and the 21st century, he has been accused of being a misogynist, uh, a patriarch, you know, somebody who, who, who looked down on women. And this is an utter misunderstanding of the writings of the Apostle Paul. Within the broader writings of Paul, what you discover is that Paul shares this same paradigm of men and women being fully equal, being partners, and yet having distinction, having difference. Equality. Paul gives a dazzling vision of equality between men and women with respect to creation and the image of God, with respect to salvation from sin and death and the devil, uh, to participation in Christ. Uh, we are equal in that we share in the gifts of the spirits and the same eternal destiny. There is no difference between men and women. And this is what Paul has in view when he says this, for as many as you were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. But what does it mean that there is uh, no male or female in Christ? Well, notice this pair is set alongside two other pairs, and the three pairs together are still the most powerful ways that people in our society are divided and stratified and oppressed. There is neither Jew nor Greek, that's race. There is neither slave nor free, that's class. And there is neither male nor female, and that's gender. And in the community of salvation in the church, there is a decisive change in our status before God and a change in our status with respect to each other. The identities that used to divide us, the presumptions that we used to use to deem people inferior to us, the powers that used to enslave us to conflict with each other, Paul says they have all been deconstructed and dismantled and taken apart in Jesus Christ. And that is good news, amen? amen? Gender can no longer be used to determine who is more or less human. And what is so remarkable is that Paul proclaimed his gospel in a world where we looked at last week, where women were treated as less than human, according to Roman law, according to Roman goods of education and work, according to life itself. In salvation, though, says Paul, the image of God is restored in women and in men, and there is no distinction, no cause of division, no reason for inferiority or pride. Women and men have equal access, equal dignity for women we have put on Christ. Thanks be to God. Not only do we have full equality, but we have a joint partnership. In Paul, we discover not only the surprising joy and dignity of men and women in salvation, we find in him a profound mutuality, a true partnership between men and women in the life of worship and mission. And this is nowhere more clear than in Paul's discussion about the gifts of the Spirit. You see, God fills both men and women equally with gifts by His Spirit. And there are no gender-specific gifts. 
The gifts are given to all men and women for the building up of the body of Christ. The spirit makes no distinction in his distribution of gifts. And there is no restriction placed on the gifts exercised by women or men within the body of Christ. And so, for example, I mean, think about it this way. In Corinth, the spirit could have gifted a slave as a teacher and her master with gifts of service. Wouldn't that be ironic? Paul says, in the body of Christ, I mean, for it to be healthy, each must use their gifts for the edification of the whole body. It is wrong for one member to say, I have no need of you. It is wrong for one age demographic to say to another, I have no need of you. One class or one race or one gender to say to the other, I have no need of you. Friends, we are in desperate need of each other. Can I get a witness? Amen. And so there is equality, there is partnership, but there is, according to Paul, difference. And this difference is spilled out in different places and in different ways. And we're going to see how he spells out the difference in this passage that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 11. But before we get there, I want to highlight one place where Paul does highlight a difference, and it's in Ephesians chapter 5, where he speaks about the relationship between husband and wife. Interestingly, Paul draws upon some of the categories that would have been familiar to his ancient audience when it came to a Greco-Roman household. Uh, In a Greco-Roman larger household, there were husbands and wives and parents and children, and there were slaves and masters. This was part of the Greco-Roman culture. And in his writings, Paul addresses each one of these individual groups. But what's interesting is that although he uses the same words and categories, he invests these words and categories with a radically different meaning. So that what it means to be a husband and wife in a marriage relationship looked dramatically different in the church than it did in the broader culture. And so although Paul in Ephesians says that the man is the head and the wife is called to submit to the man in that text, he redefines headship as self-giving service of his wife. And in fact, in the Greco-Roman world, the only people that would bathe children and adults were women and servants. But in Ephesians 5, who is it that is called to wash and bathe their wife? It is the man. He's redefining the relationship in ways that would have been surprising and subversive to the power structures in the Greco-Roman world. Paul does this all the time. And because we look at it through the lens of 21st century eyes and through our own grid, we can often misread him and, and, and read him as being this strict traditionalist, where in reality, he is being incredibly progressive and liberating and revolutionary in what he is teaching about how families are to function together. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's dive into this rather tricky, tricky text, shall we? I'm second, though. Let's just pray and go home. (laughs) So what I want you to see in the passage we're looking at is actually how these ideas of equality, partnership, and difference surface in what Paul is saying. So first, this passage reflects true partnership between men and women in prayer and prophecy and in the exercise of gifts. Look at what it says in verse 4. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. 
And what strikes us here is this business about somebody who has their head covered or uncovered. But what ought to strike us is that both men and women are praying and prophesying in the public assembly. But what is prayer and prophecy? Well, New Testament scholar Francis Watson puts it like this. She says, in prophecy, one articulates the word of God to the congregation. And in prayer, one articulates the word of the congregation to God. And in, 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 in the conjunction of these activities, there occurs the divine human dialogue that lives at the heart of the Christian community's life and worship. That's good, isn't it? Or in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, the one who prophesies speaks words of edification and exhortation and comfort to the body of Christ. And so in Paul's experience of the local church and in Paul's advice and in his traditions that he hands over to the local church, they had both men and women standing up and speaking words of edification and encouragement and comfort as well as standing up and publicly praying in the church. This passage not only affirms a joint partnership in the ministry of the church, but I want you to see in verse 11 and 12, this passage also affirms the shared and equal dignity and value and worth of those who are created by God. And look what it says in verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born from woman, and all things are of God. As woman was made by man, so now man is born of woman, and all are from God. We share equal worth and dignity as those who have been created in the image of God, and we have been created for God, and we have created by God. But here's the difference. Both pray and prophesy in our text, but how these gifts are worked out is different. Now, it starts to get pretty weird here, so let's just kind of like look at what he says. So the, the strange thing for us in this text is that the difference regarding men and women in their ministry in the public assembly involves hairstyle <laughs> and head coverings. Look at what he says in verse 4. Again, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven for bed. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or to shave her head, let her cover her head. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. And, but woman is the glory of man. And then look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now stop there. There was an uh, Italian philosopher and uh, professor of semiotics whose name was Umberto Eco. Dr. Cavolo knows all about this guy. But he made this quote one time, he said that, or he said this statement one time. He says, I am speaking through my clothes. Now, what he says for clothes could also be said for hair. We speak through our hair. And this was certainly the case in the ancient world. They spoke not just in their words, but also through their hair, which, of course, we do as well. 
Oh, look. So here's a man who's speaking through his hair. Dreadlocks, I read this week, are universally symbolic of a spiritualist understanding that vanity and physical appearances are unimportant. The counterpart to dreadlocks is the shaven head, which has the same aim, disregard for vanity associated with physical appearance. Of course, in the 80s, punk rockers uh, chose the style of Mohawk in order to communicate their own rebellion against the establishment. And then in the 60s, the Afro became a powerful political symbol which reflected black pride and a rejection of notions of assimilation and integration. And then, of course, in the 60s as well, uh, a long-haired hippie reflected the, the kind of sticking it to the man. We're not going to take it anymore. We're going to you know, pull out of the system and do our own thing. And so we communicate not just with our words and not just with our actions, we communicate with our hair. What is your hair saying today? What is your hair saying, Dr. Cavolo? Rockstar. Rockstar. Now, in the ancient world, you also communicated with your hair. In Roman culture, hairstyles acted as a sign that said something about who you were. And a veil, a head covering for a woman, was understood by everyone to be a cultural symbol of chastity and modesty, and it was reserved for elite married women. Women who were slaves or prostitutes or former slaves were actually not allowed to wear the veil in that culture. And by contrast, an unveiled head symbolized sexual availability or low cultural status. And so if a woman walked in public without a veil, a Roman man would not be held legally accountable for sexually assaulting her. In fact, uh, Caesar commanded that all of the elite, the high-status women, they had to wear their heads covered in order to protect them, in order to communicate their own elite status and propriety. But interestingly, Paul in our text asks all women to wear the veil during worship, regardless of low social status, and this was a countercultural move. And if there, were women, if, there, if there were women at church who were slaves, then wearing the veil would have disrupted Roman power dynamics, equalizing all women in the church as elite, chaste, and protected. And so by covering her creational glory, her hair in worship, and hair in the ancient world was the very peak of feminine beauty, so by covering the very peak of their feminine beauty, all glory could be directed to God when they were leading in prayer and in prophecy, in worship. And that is why in verse 10, he actually says that women have authority over their own head. In some of your Bibles, it says that the woman should wear, in fact, in my Bibles, it says that's why a wife ought to wear, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That's actually an interpretive gloss. It's not there in the original Greek. All that it says in the original Greek is that women either have authority on their head or over their head. And so what was the situation? Well, it's possible that the men in the community in the Christian community resisted the practice of all women veiling because it would have undermined Greco-Roman social order. And this is why Paul says a woman ought to have authority over her own head. There is no need for that interpretive gloss, a symbol of authority. Instead, he says a woman has authority over her head in that she can veil her head if she wants, even if it would have been countercultural. 
The woman has authority over her own head. Now, what's missed here, so you get why the woman is veiling her head, but what's missed here is that Paul is not simply concerned with what the women do with their hair and their heads in worship. He's also concerned with the men. Look at what he says. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, in, in there, there's a way of translating this in the Greek, and it's kind of 50-50 among commentators about how to translate this, but I go with the group that says that what he's referring to is a man with long hair, because he refers to this later. And so what, what he's covered by is his long hair. And so Paul confronts them here. Actually, in all seriousness, what Paul probably is referring to is in the Greco-Roman world, men uh, at times would grow their hair out long and sometimes curl it in order to look effeminate. Because remember, the peak of beauty in the ancient world was a person's hair. And so they would do this in order to gain the attention of other men, to blur gender distinctions. But in Corinth, you remember one of the mantras was, all things are lawful for me. We can do whatever we want. And so gender distinctions, they're blurred. I can grow my hair out long. Women, they don't need to have their hair uncovered. They can symbolize through their uncovered hair that they're sexually available. And Paul says, no, you can't. And notice the argument he gives as to why they can't. He addresses this problem of men who have uncovered heads or of women who have uncovered heads and men who have long hair by talking about the head. And notice what he says. He says, the head of man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, there's a great debate over how to translate this word head in this passage. Because, listen, the word head in the English language has a wide semantic range. On the one hand, it can mean physiologically your head as opposed to your body, your cranium. But sometimes we use head in a figurative or metaphorical sense, as in uh, that man is the headmaster of a school, meaning he's in charge of the school. Sometimes we talk about the head of state, and a head of state is a representative over the state. Sometimes we metaphorically speak about a trail head or the head waters. And what we mean there is not that the, the, the trail, the, the head is the, the authoritative trail. Rather, we're talking about the origin, the beginning, the very source of the trail is right here. This is the beginning point. And the same semantic range that exists in English also existed in Greek. And so there was a range of ways in which you could translate these words. Now, obviously, he's not talking here about the physical head. He's talking metaphorically. So how do we read this? Is he talking about uh, uh, authority, or is he speaking maybe of the originating source or the beginning, like a trailhead? Or in the ancient world, you know the, the date on the Jewish calendar, Rosh Hashanah? Do you know what the word Rosh means in Hebrew? It's head. They call it the head day because it's the very beginning of the whole new year. And so again, it's an ancient way of translating the word uh, head, meaning originating or beginning source. Now, some people say that the best way to translate this is authority. But I don't actually think that's the proper way to interpret this because within this passage, the broader passage, he is actually not talking about the relationship between husbands and wife He's talking about the relationship between men and women in the church. And there is nowhere in the Bible that says that men are over women. 
There is a sound argument to be made that within the local church, there is an office of elder that is reserved for qualified males, and both men and women in the church are called to submit to that office. There's a great argument to be made, as we referred to earlier, that there's this thing called headship within the family system, and we can talk about what that means, you know. But I think in here, that's not what he's talking about because the broader context is not about marriage. It's not even a discussion about authority and submission. Instead, he's speaking of something else. In fact, if you look at your Bibles down, um, the meaning that I think best fits this context uh, is source or life. And it could be, you could paraphrase verse three like this. I want you to realize that every man's life comes from Christ, woman's life comes from man, and Christ's life comes from God. So Paul here explains headship from the story of creation where woman's life comes from man. So you know back in the beginning, God puts the man to sleep and he takes woman, the source of woman is from the side of man. You remember that story? And he fashions from her. And it's interesting because he talks about the woman being taken from man, but then he turns it around at the end of the passage and he says, but he says, men now are birthed into the world through who? Women. Can I get a witness on that? I wasn't, you guys <laughs> trying to get an answer to that one. I wasn't, you're, yeah. Men are birthed into the women through women. And I think his point is, is that men and women are in a relationship of interdependence with each other. And this is just what he says down in verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born from woman, and all things are from God. Now, why does he assert this point about mutual interdependence between men and women into this story at this point? And I think the reason is this. He wants us to see that in our actions in the Christian community, we are not solo individual operators and lone rangers. In other words, you are intimately connected with others around you. And his concern in this passage is that the, the action of a woman or the action of a man would bring shame to themselves and to those around them. The woman who gets up and prophesies in a way that her head's uncovered and she's sexually available, she might bring dis... This is an honor-shame culture. Has anybody here ever felt ashamed or embarrassed by how your children acted in public? Has anybody ever experienced that? Now take that feeling and multiply it by 100. And you start to move into what it felt like to inhabit an honor-shame culture. And Paul says if... A woman gets up and prophesies with her head uncovered. Maybe she's a single woman and she's going to dishonor, she's going to bring shame to the family, to her father. And she's going to bring shame if she's married to her husband. And then he, then he says, the man who gets up and he's got this long flowy hair, he's blurring gender distinctions. He says, he is bringing shame to himself and he's bringing shame to Christ because God created him in his own image and, he, and he's dishonoring his maleness, the way in which as a male he is to image God. So I think that's what he's getting at here in the broader context. So let me just sum it up like this. What Paul is calling us to do in this text, in some ways, is very basic and simple. At a most basic fundamental level, he is saying, look, 
If you are engaged in public worship or you're engaged in leading Bible studies or community groups or whatever, be aware of issues of modesty and propriety and don't do things that's going to draw people's attention to you and away from the glory of God. But he's also saying something about gender distinctions. He's saying, look, in your life in the world, make sure you seek to honor God as male and female. Don't blur the gender distinctions. Do this in the life of the church because underneath it all is you don't want to bring shame and embarrassment to yourself and to others. Why? Well, because the governing ethic in the life of Christians is love. And somebody who loves God and loves neighbor wants to act in worship and in Christian community in ways that actually bring glory to God, that actually honor others, not in ways that shame and dishonor others. And I think that's what he's getting at in this passage. Now, does that have relevance for us in our day and age today? It most certainly does. So what I want to do is I want to stand back now and just for a few minutes, I want to bring the claims of this text, what I think Paul is doing in in this text, into dialogue with, on the one hand, the traditional church and our assumption regarding sexuality and gender and the broader culture, the progressive culture and its assumptions regarding sexuality and gender. So first, how does this text engage with traditional church assumptions regarding sexuality and gender. Well, on the one hand, this text certainly shares the concern of traditionalists with modesty and propriety in corporate worship. You don't want to do things that are drawing attention to yourself. You don't want to be attention-seeking. You want to bring the glory to God. But on the other hand, this text provides us a picture of equality and partnership both women and men prophesying and praying in public that I think runs against the grain of how many churches traditionally have operated within more conservative circles. Now, there is a live question, a live debate among believing Christians regarding the office of elder and whether or not that office is uniquely reserved for qualified males, but an office is not spiritual gifts that are given to to, um, grace the body of Christ. It's an office within the church. And what this text is envisioning is a Christian community where both men and women are prophesying and praying in public to benefit and build up the body of Christ. I remember there was a woman at my old church who told me she wasn't comfortable with women serving communion and with uh, a woman at the end of the service pronouncing a blessing over the congregation. And she said, you know, I, I, in my, that's just the, that's what men are supposed to do. And she said, you know, the priests in the Old Testament, they blessed people and they were men. Yeah, but in the New Testament, the entire Christian community, both men and women are called a priesthood of believers, called and graced by the Spirit of God to bless and to build up the body of Christ. It is totally appropriate to have a woman stand up and pronounce a blessing over you. I remember I was in a debate with uh, some of my friends um, who, over the question of whether or not women should get up and preach in the public uh, assembly. And I pointed out that here in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about women prophesying in church, which he defines in 1 Corinthians 14. You can go there, and he says, uh, those who prophesy speak words of edification to build up and encourage the church. 
I said, so isn't it okay for women to get up and to speak in church, words of edification uh, to build up and comfort the church? And they said, yes, but they just can't uh, use the Bible and it can't be gospel preaching when they do it. And I was like, well, what pray tell are they going to speak words of edification about? <laughs> they just got to go up and read some nice quotes from Oprah Winfrey or something? I mean, what's the, like, no, like, of course, this is the ministry that is given to the women in the church alongside the men. But the exercise of our gifts always come underneath the rule of love, what builds up and honors the body of Christ. We have to do all things in a way that serves for the edification of the body. And so that's one way in which we might bring this text into conversation with traditionalists. But let's talk for a minute about how this text might be brought into conversation with more progressive ideology about gender fluidity and gender expression in our culture. And I think what this text is proclaiming to us and what the Bible as a whole teaches us is that your gender identity is not rooted as the broader culture believes in your internal subjective states. Rather, it is a gift from the hand of the creator that God created us in the beginning, male and female. There is a natural created order from the hand of God. And part of living in this world is honoring our gender identity in this world. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying we need to perpetuate gender stereotypes. You know, when I was a small child, I didn't like tools. In fact, I had a little Snoopy doll all the way up until the time that I was in sixth grade and I would ride my bicycle up when I saved enough money and I would buy doll clothes for Snoopy. I've always loved to cook. I've never liked to go out and work on cars. You know, I mean, there, there are things that don't fit gender stereotypes. And of course, in our culture, it's perfectly appropriate for women to wear pants, you know, but it's not appropriate for a man to wear a dress in our culture. The sign of that, the symbolism of that communicates something different about gender fluidity and gender identity. And so he is calling us here to respect our gender that is given to us as a gift from the hand of the God who made us. Now, I recognize that this pushes up against where our culture is at. And so I just want, if you're maybe in the house today and you've got questions about this issue, maybe you're finding yourself disagreeing with me, you were invited to church by a friend, I respect you, I am glad you're here. But let me just challenge you and let me just raise a few questions to you. The first question is this. If we can shift identities based on internal subjective states, then why not other identities? Why can I not say that I identify as an African-American even though I'm white? And this actually happened. Many of you will know this. Uh, a woman named Rachel Dalazar, she writes this. She says, I'm not going to stop and apologize and grovel. Two years ago, she was a respected black rights activist and teacher. And then she was exposed as a white woman who deceived almost everyone she knew. Why did she do it? Her response, I feel that I was born with the essential essence of who I am, whether it matches my anatomy or of complexion or not. I've never questioned being a girl or a woman, but whiteness has always felt foreign to me for as long as I can remember. I did not choose to feel this way or be this way. I just am. What other choice do I have other than to be just who we are? And when she identified with the African-American struggle and talked about 
uh, and talked about us, people were quick to respond, all your life, all, you know what you've had? White privilege. And for you, then because you feel like it, you want to identify with a legitimate minority. What gives you the right to feel like you've been through the struggle? All you've had is white privilege, and any moment you like, you can live in another world and access that privilege at, at will. So if we can do this for gender identity, why not race or species for that matter? Why not identify as a unicorn? And you see this sort of thing happening. It's cropping up. If it's all based on subjective states rather than biology and anatomy and physiology, it starts to get really weird and it starts to make our categories meaningless. Another category, transabled people. Jason said he suffers from body integrity identity disorder. He basically says that even though I'm physically able, I identify as disabled. Body identity integrity disorder. There's another one called amputee disorder. It says this, otherwise healthy individuals perceive that one or more of their limbs is alien to the rest of their body and wish to have it amputated. And these are people who are seeking to have surgery on various limbs to have them removed. And we think that's so barbaric. Why would you remove a functioning limb? But logically, the question you have to ask, is that not just as an aggressive maneuver as going in and removing other body parts in order to become a different gender? What about women's rights? To protect women's rights, we have to be able to say what a woman is. Mary Lou Singleton of the Women's Right Liberation Front says this, my entire life's work is fighting for the class of people who are oppressed on the basis of their biological sex, including atrocities like forced child marriage and fantasized of baby girls and the mutilation that occurs across the globe. But because of the gender identity movement, it is now deemed transphobic to label these victims as women and girls. What we're seeing now is the legal erasure of the material reality of sex. Protection based on sex are now being eliminated from the law. And how does this show up? Well, there's a major controversy, some of you will know this, surrounding athletics and transgender realities. In Connecticut, two transgender women are, enter are entering into female sports and dominating the field and it's creating disillusionment because the men cannot beat them and they are dominating at a state level. And so as this begins to make its way further into the public square, it's making its way into the Olympics, and what do we do with women's rights? And there's all these questions, and they go on and on and on. And it's almost like a movement has entered into our culture at a far faster speed than we have allowed space to have ethical and theological and psychological and medical discussions about what we are doing. Now let me just land the plane by saying this. If you are here this morning, and maybe you're in a place where you have experienced gender dysphoria, I know it's a real experience. You kind of don't feel comfortable in your own skin, and maybe for a variety of reasons in your own history or your genetic makeup, it just doesn't feel right who you are. And I don't say these words to come after you and attack you. I say these words simply to raise important ethical and medical and theological and psychological questions about where we are at as a culture. But I want you to know that God loves you. 
And that the God we meet in this passage is a God who is forming a community of equality and partnership, who is welcoming all different kinds of people in so that they can experience his power and his love. And there is a place for you at the table. God can welcome you into his family. You need to come to him and receive his grace. But when you come to him, he welcomes you with open arms. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been. There is no place that you can run that God's love does not go further still. God is with you and God is for you. You just need to turn and he will welcome you into his arms. And of course, this is not just true for people who might be struggling with these particular issues. It's true for us all. And the real power source, the real fire out of which we can move into being a true community that empowers and serves and loves and cares for and extends compassion to each other and to different genders and to people wherever they find themselves is when we are a people that continually receive the love of God afresh in our own life through Jesus Christ. So let's pray together and just ask that God would continue to make us into that community. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would reveal to us more of your love. We ask, God, that by your spirit, you would help us understand the glorious vocation of being one who is created in your image. Enable us to see the beauty of being a part of your family, gifted by your spirit to grace other people. And I pray, oh God, that this would be a community where both men and women and their gifts and their intelligence and their wisdom and their leadership is honored and valued where they're empowered so that our whole church family can be built up. God, come among us and do this work, we pray. And reveal to us more and more your great heart of love that is revealed to us in the great event of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.